Celebrate New Year's Eve and ring in 2020 with the perfect view at the Commonwealth Club's premier Embarcadero location. As thousands of spectators watch from below, you'll revel in rooftop views of the famous Embarcadero fireworks, indulgent cuisine, high-end spirits, lively entertainment, and the ultimate New Year's Eve experience. Our New Year's Eve party was ranked in the top 10 New Year's Eve parties in San Francisco. So visit our website and reserve your spot today. CommonwealthClub.org Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. Uh, I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. And I'd like to welcome everybody who's going to listen in later. In addition to that, if you're interested in our programs, you can always visit us at www.commonwealthclub.org. It's also my pleasure to introduce Tim Hampton, who we've had here many times for the Humanities Forum at the Commonwealth Club. And he's going to be speaking tonight uh, about Montaigne on Friendship. And Tim is uh, a professor at UC Berkeley. In addition to that, he runs the Townsend Humanities Center there as well. Thanks a lot for coming again, Tim. Thanks very much, George. <clears throat> thanks. thanks, everybody, for coming out to, to, to talk about Montaigne. Um, I can't think of anything more fun which may give you an idea of my life, but um, I, I still can't think of anything more fun. I have. If, did everybody get the handout? Okay, this is all going to be uh, on the board, but I have, I'm, a, I'm a believer in paper, so I, like, I always like to bring a handout. <clears throat> I thought it might be interesting to talk about, uh, about friendship. Uh, it seems to be in short supply these days. Not too much, at least in the Judiciary Committee in Washington. Uh, but I also wanted to talk a little bit about the philosophy of Montaigne, or Montaigne, or Montaigne, as, the, or Montaigne, as the, they call him in the south of France. Montaigne's a fairly hip philosopher these days, uh, in some measure because of an excellent book by an English writer named Sarah Bakewell that came out a couple of years ago called How to Live, a Life of Montaigne in 20 Questions and an Answer, or something. Uh, no, a question, a, a, a question and and 12 Attempts at an Answer, I think it's called. Um, uh, but he's also been called recently the, by a reviewer in the New Republic, the inventor of jazz, and by the New York Times, the first blogger. So uh, I'll, w- you'll get a sense of why that is as we go. So I thought what I might do is say a few things about, by way of introduction, about just about Montaigne, and give you a sense of why I think uh, what he says about uh, friendship is interesting, and why it's important and modern uh, in particular, and, and walk us through a little bit his essay on, on, on friendship. Uh, and I've got a f- couple of passages that are, that are on the handout here that also project on the, on the screen for people too, so we can sort of talk about it. <clears throat> Let me just say a little bit about Montaigne, um, if you don't know anything about him. So he was born in 1533 and died in 1592. Uh, he's an almost exact contemporary of Shakespeare. Uh, a little bit older, uh, Shakespeare read him uh, in English, uh, and also of Cervantes, who, of course, didn't read him. Um, but who, Shakespeare and Cervantes both died in 1616. Um, he's like Shakespeare and Cervantes in the sense that he's a kind of transition figure, it seems to me, in European intellectual life. He looks back, ironically, on the kind of heroic idealism of the Renaissance, of the high Renaissance, uh, 
using many of the ideas of the high renaissance and of what we often think of as humanism, renaissance humanism with its adoration of antiquity and its emphasis on heroic virtues and so on and so forth. But he looks upon those ideals with a great deal of irony and skepticism. Um, so when we think of the way in which uh, Shakespeare is drawing on Roman history with in Julius Caesar, but also looking at it very ironically, Montaigne does similar kinds of things in his essays. Um, the late great literary critic Harold Bloom wrote a book once called Shakespeare or the Invention of the Human. Um, I was amused to see that title since if he had been re- talking about Montaigne, it actually would have made some sense. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, we... We, we cut Harold Bloom a lot of slack. Um, in any case, he's no longer with us, and that's, that's the way it goes. Uh, so who was Montaigne? So he was, he, was, he, was from, he was from in a recently ennobled family of French merchants, uh, born in the southwest of France, in the very southwestern corner near Bordeaux. His father was very deeply influenced by the new ideas coming into France from Italy, um, what we would think of as the Renaissance humanism, uh, emphasis on classical languages, emphasis on the study of rhetoric, emphasis on ideals of education, training you for a life of public service, the study of history, the study of uh, classical ideals, classical moral philosophy, and so on and so forth. All the things we used to study in the university in the United States before we lost our way. Um, Montaigne went to the best private school in France and studied with famous scholars. Um, he was destined for a life of public service uh, as a member of the court or possibly as a diplomat. Um, he, his first language was Latin, which may seem strange, but his father was so enamored of the ideals of the classical world that he hired a tutor who spoke no French, a German tutor who spoke no French. And so Montaigne was raised by this tutor who spoke Latin to him first. And everybody in the household, says Montaigne, had to learn a little bit of Latin so they could engage in conversations with little baby Michel in Latin. So Latin was his first language. So he was a kind of Roman after the fact or before the fact. Uh, He only learned French later. Anyway, he had this fabulous education, um, studied with very famous teachers and, and, and scholars, and was destined for a life of public service. He served for a while at the part in the Parliament of Toulouse, which was so in France in the 16th century. The um, the government was organized around a series of regional councils, kind of which were called parliaments, not parliaments in the English sense, but um, parliaments in the literal sense, meaning places where people would parler. That's to say, speak. And these, and so Montaigne worked in, uh, was kind of representative in the, in the local council because he was from a noble family after all. Um, and, um, if any of you, by the way, have ever seen the Bertrand Tavernier movie called The Return of Martin Guerre starring Gerard Depardieu, the young Gerard Depardieu before he became, uh, uh, uh strange, uh, that gives you a very beautiful vision of what life is like in the southwest of France, um, during the time, during that period. So uh, during this period that Montaigne is coming to adulthood, uh, France descends into a hor- horrific civil war, religious war between Protestants and Catholics after 1560 that goes on for 35 years. Um, and it, uh, it's the great political crisis in France before the 1789 revolution. 
So Montaigne's per- pursuing his career, and at the Parliament of Toulouse, he became friends with a young nobleman whose name was Etienne de la Boissie. And I realized that I should have written this down on the handout, but um, it's spelled D-E-L-A-B-O-E-T-I-E, de la Boissie, Etienne de la Boissie, Etienne, E-T-I-E-N-N-E, Etienne de la Boissie. And la Boissie was from a, a, a neighboring town, Sarlat, near where Montaigne lived, and was trained in the classics, as was Montaigne. And he wrote uh, poetry in French and in Latin uh, and was very interested in political philosophy. Here's a handout. Uh, In 1549, he wrote a sort of political treatise that was really a kind of uh, almost a scholastic exercise, a political treatise called On Voluntary Servitude. And the idea behind this uh, this political treatise was that uh, it's nutty for many people to obey one person, when you think about it. That's one person being the king. In other words, isn't it strange, says La Boise, that you got all these people out there and the king runs everything when they don't have to obey him. They could just kill him, obviously, right? And uh, But he says, we have to have political order, is that we voluntarily give ourselves over to serving the king. This is why it's called the Discourse of Voluntary Servitude. So this is a kind of political treatise that that he wrote um, as a kind of school exercise. He wrote this in French, right? And through this text and through his uh, work at the the Parliament of Toulouse, uh, Montaigne became friends with La Boissie. And it's interesting. I mean, I thought about this a lot because... It, it's interesting to imagine what it would have been like to be a learned intellectual of the kind that Montaigne was in provincial France in the 16th century, where basically nobody can read. They can't even read French, let alone Latin. Um, the French nobility was notoriously illiterate compared to the Italians, um, better than the English, of course, but compared to the Italians, they were notoriously illiterate. And... And here's Montaigne, who's reading Seneca and Cicero and Ovid and Virgil. He's trained in the classics. He's reading the Latins, he's reading, or the Italians. He's reading Machiavelli, Castiglione, and so on and so forth, Boccaccio, Petrarch. And he's completely alone out there in southwestern France. And he meets this fellow soulmate, uh, La Boissie, who's, who's has similar passions. And so when we think about Montaigne on friendship, we have to remember how strange that must have been and how difficult it must have been to find someone who was your soulmate. I mean, we take this kind of stuff for granted nowadays. Um, but in, that ca- in, in, in this case, it was extremely rare. Okay, so um, in 1563, however, La Boissie dies, unfortunately. And in 1571, Montaigne's own father, who had, who had raised him up to be a kind of classical scholar and trained him for the law, also dies. Uh, so Montaigne, at this point, gives up his career uh, or his ambitions to be a courtier or a diplomat or whatever it was he wanted to be. And he basically hangs out at his castle, which you can go visit today still, uh, and starts to write. Um, people often talk about him withdrawing, but he didn't withdraw in any kind of medieval sense. He didn't go into a monastery or any of that kind of stuff. But he does stop living a kind of public life, and he hangs out, and he runs his estate, and he starts writing. And nobody quite knows what he's writing. Um, and uh, 
he calls these things that he writes essays, which is a word that he invents. And the word essay comes from the French word essayer, or it's a verb which means to try out or to taste or to weigh. Um, when we think of the English word assay, assay, an assayer who weighs gold, right? That comes from the French word, essayer. So the essays are weighings in a certain kind of way, right? And Montaigne invents a new literary form, this thing called the essay that we think of today. And we can think of a long literary tradition coming out of that. Ralph Waldo Emerson writes essays. Nietzsche writes essays. E.B. White writes essays. I don't know. Everybody writes essays. My students write essays, though they're not as good as these. Um, and, um, and so he write, starts writing these things. And what he tries to do, and so I focused on the idea of weighing, because what he does in these essays, especially in the early ones, is he picks up some topic of importance in classical philosophy, like friendship, moderation, sadness, anger. These are the kind of classic cliches that any moral philosopher would talk about, think about. And he tries to weigh them. He tries to weigh different attitudes toward them. Um, he draws on his reading in classical philosophy and classical literature, which is principally in Latin. He doesn't know Greek, um, but he does know Latin. And so he's read Seneca and Cicero in particular. He's read a lot of Latin poetry. He's read the Greek philosopher Plutarch in French. Um, he knows some Plato, some Aristotle, but he's not, that, that's not really his game. His game is more, more kind of Latin moral philosophy. And he kind of weighs whatever is on his mind, and he draws on contemporary examples. He draws on his reading, and he writes these strange texts. Um, they're not essays in any modern sense, and whenever I teach Montaigne, I always say to my students, do not do this at home, um, because there's no argument. They don't go in a straight line. They wander all over the place. Um, so he, and he changes direction according to what he happens to be thinking about at any, at any one moment. <clears throat> um, at one point, he compares his book to a body. He says, well, part of what I'm writing came out of the fact that I was, had a cold. So I started writing about that. And then another part came out of the fact that I was feeling really tired, right? Um, so the, so it's, it's a book that's really born in some way out of Montaigne's momentary experiences and out of, out of his body, quite literally, um, which makes it extremely modern if you think about a lot, especially a lot of contemporary writers um, who are very interested in writing about the body. Okay, he had a very strange way of writing, and this is the last point I really, well, I want to make two other points, and then we'll talk about the essay, what, which is that he, in 1580, so in 1580, he publishes two books of these essays, and then he goes, uh, then he splits for Italy, which is what, you know, you're supposed to do, and uh, goes on a, goes to Rome and hangs out. He's, he's got kidney stones, so he's trying to go to the baths to soak his way out of the kidney stones. Anyway, he goes to Italy, and... Um, he takes his book with him and he reads what he's published and he writes commentaries on his own book in the margins of his own book. Um, and when he comes back eight years later, he publishes a second edition of the essays with now a third book added in and everything that he's written in the margins, he now makes the main text of the book. In other words, he, the book he doesn't add on, it's not like he writes 10 pages and then goes back and rewrites and adds five pages at the end. He sticks stuff right into the middle of the text, right? 
And he continues to do this throughout his entire life. So he just adds more junk into the text. Quotations, he suddenly thinks of a passage in Ovid, and he puts that in there in Latin. He suddenly thinks of something that happened to him recently, he puts that in there. So this, this gives us a very strange text, because it's, first of all, it's a text which is like an amoeba, in that it grows endlessly, and it's only going to stop when he dies, right? Which he finally does. Uh, <clears throat> It also means that when we read Montaigne, thanks to the miracle of modern scholarship, uh, we can we can now look at, the, and he never takes anything out. He only puts stuff in. So we can look at how he adds bits of text, having read what he's already written. And you can see how he kind of changes direction or how here's a thought which in 1580 he thought was completed, but now he sees there's something else to add in. So he adds it in for 1588, right? So what this means is, oops, so, so modern editions of Montaigne uh, usually have A, B, and C. Um, so you'll be reading along and suddenly you'll see an A, and that you'll know that that's a passage that was written for the first version of the essay. And then later on there's a little B, and you can say, okay, now we can see where he added this in. So I'll just give you an example of some of these things. This is the beginning of the essay. This is, this is uh, obviously not the original text, but uh, this is something that I, I downloaded from a wonderful website at the University of Chicago, which is called the Montaigne Project, where you can see not only all of the essays online in French, but... This is a, this is the original. This is the last edition that was published. Um, so you can see. Well, you can't see too much here, but if you go here, you can see what I'm talking about. This is stuff where he went back and read his own text and just wrote in the margins. And then when he republishes it, all of this stuff is going to be right here in the middle. So he, so we can sort of see how he's. You can read his text almost as a kind of archaeological dig and kind of see how he's changing. So. Um, so it's a very weird text. Now, so I, I wanted to mention this because um, uh, this brings us to the essay on friendship. So when his friend La Boétie dies, Montaigne has this idea that he's going to put La Boétie's book, the famous book on voluntary servitude, and make it the centerpiece of his essays. And all of the essays actually are going to be written around, and, and he says at the beginning of the essay on friendship that that he's like a painter who has one central panel and then he writes little, and then he draws little, you know, funny little squiggles around the... Montaigne says, my essays are the little squiggles and La Boétie is the centerpiece, right? Sounds great. Great idea. Unfortunately, just as he was about to publish his book, some Protestants, those nasty Protestants, Montaigne was a Catholic, some Protestant fanatics steal La Boétie's text... I mean, there's no such thing as copyright. They they appropriate it and they publish it as if it were uh, uh, a treatise against the king. Remember, I told you, La Boise says, "Why should we obey the king? Because you know we can kill him, right?" So these Protestants who want to kill a king publish the text and say, "Aha!" They rename it the the against one, and they say, "Here it is, man. Go after him. Go go kill the king." This is what we would today call fake news, right? So, so the Protestants have appropriated La Boise's text. Montaigne now has a problem on his hands because he can't publish the text because the Protestants just stole it. And so he's got nothing for his text. And, and in the end, he publishes some love sonnets that, that, that La Boise wrote. And he says, okay, that's going to be the center of the text, but I can't put in the, anyway, so what's, what, what, what does this have to do with, um, with friendship? couple of things. One is, the, we can see that the, Montaigne's whole project is 
built around a kind of hole. There's a kind of a hole in, in the project of the essays. There's nothing there where they're supposed to be La Boise. And this other thing we can think of is that whatever he says about friendship is a kind of practice of grieving and mourning for his lost friend. He wanted to preserve the legacy of his lost friend and bring his ideas to a larger public, and he can't do it. So everything he writes, he writes in some way to correct that fact. And he says at one point in the essays, I don't want to write essays. What I really want to do is write letters, but I have nobody to write to. So I have to write essays. So the essays are kind of, if I were an ancient philosopher like Cicero, I could write letters to Atticus. Or if I were like Seneca, I could write letters to my friend Lucilius. I don't have anybody to write to, so I have to write essays. So the whole project is based on this idea of the dead friend. That's kind of an astonishing thing, it seems to me at least. Okay, so what does he say in the essay? So <clears throat> he begins by saying... <clears throat> He begins by working through the, the, what the different kinds of friendship are. And he says, well, first friendship is, first thing we could say is affection of parents for children. Is that a kind of friendship? No. Uh, why? Because friendship is fed on communication and you can't, you, fr- parents and children can't communicate. We all know that. I mean, I could have told them that. Um, and uh, there's inequality, Right. And the thing about friendship, says Moltene, is that the friends have to be able to correct each other. And the child can never correct the parent. This is in the 16th century, right? The child can never correct the parent, right, he says. Right? So, that's, so we can put that out of the way. Right? That's, that's first version, right? Uh, no, no, no children of parents, right? Then he moves on to the friendship between the sexes. He says erotic friendships, erotic relationships like friendship are voluntary. Children and parents are not voluntary, but erotic friendship, erotic relationships are, friend, are, are voluntary. However, the, they're a mess because they ha- have moments of extraordinary intensity followed by la- less intensity, right? <laughs> the, the, the process of the chase, seduction, and Montaigne, it turns, it would seem, I mean, you go figure. It was the 16th century. He seems to have been somewhat of a ladies' man in his youth, he tells us at one point. Anyway, he says, the, the, the chase, the seduction, going to bed with your mistress, blah, blah, blah. It's great fun, but it's, it's overheated, and then it leads to a kind of coolness. Now I'm going to quote him. He says, in, uh, in, the problem is enjoyment destroys it, he says. In, in friendship, he says, I'm quoting him now, it is a general and universal warmth. Moderate and even, a constant and settled warmth, all gentleness and smoothness with nothing bitter and stinging about it. Right? I don't think we, would, we, we, we wouldn't apply those, that language to erotic relationships. So, that, so forget that. Forget your mistress. You're not going to be friends with your mistress. right? Um, uh, then marriage. Sorry, no luck. Marriage, he says, is a commercial relationship. It's negotiated, it's an economic relationship, it's bargained, it's linked to production, uh, to dowries, to inheritances, also to the production of children. And he says, you know, it's, it, it, it can't, you can't have friendship. Husbands and wives can't be friends. He says the thing about friendship is it has nothing to do with anything except itself. Right? And interestingly enough, he then has a long, fairly long 
uh, tangent in which he sets aside the question of homosexual love as well. He says the problem with the Greek model where you had older men falling in love with younger men and sort of educating them, the kind of idea of the Platonic Academy, he says the problem with that is that is the difference in age um, that old you can 't have older men falling in love um, older men can fall in love with younger men, but that 's not true friendship he says right um, and then he turns to his friendship with Laboisi right and he says our friendship has no other model than itself and can be compared only with itself and then there 's a passage which I br- brought in, and I just wanted to read with you here. So, and since I don't have any more handouts, I'll have to read it off. No, it's okay, it's okay. I'll have to read it off. So I'll just read this. So, so he says, For the rest, what we ordinarily call friends and friendships are nothing but acquaintanceships and familiarities formed by some chance or convenience. So that we, we know that already, right? By means of which our souls are bound to each other. Okay, fine. That's what we don't want. In the friendship I speak of, that's his friendship with La Boissie, our souls mingle and blend with each other so completely that they efface the scene that joined them. I think that's a fa- fabulous image. They efface the scene. I love it. They, they efface the scene that joined them and cannot find it again. They become so, the, the souls of the two friends become so joined that they can't even, they couldn't separate if they wanted to, right? If you press me to tell me, to tell why I loved him, I feel that this cannot be expressed except by answering because it was he because it was I. And I put it in French here, parce que c'était lui, parce que c'était moi. Because it was he, because it was I. That's the reason why I love Now, you'll notice, I was giving you this little sort of archaeological way of thinking about the essay, that this famous phrase, because it was he, because it was my, because it was I, was added late in his life. The first version of the essay just said, uh, if, you ask, if you ask me why I loved him, this cannot be expressed. Punto. But then he goes back later and he writes in, because it was he, because it was I. Brilliant. It's like he re- reading his own text, he has this brilliant phrase, right? Because it was he, because, because it was I. And in fact, what's even more amazing, and I discovered this, is that if you look at this text right here, this is, this is the text. And this is where he writes in, because it was he, because it was I. If you look really closely, which you can't see very well here, the because it was I is actually written in a different color ink from the because it was he. So he wrote, because it was he, and then maybe the next day, he thought, oh yeah, because it was I. Because, so then he added in, because it was he, because it was I, right? So he's constantly thinking, he's constantly returning to his own text and trying to expand on this idea of what it is to have this deep love for his friend. And what is it that causes that love? It's not money, it's not inheritance, it's not sex, it's because it was he, because it was I mysterious in a particular kind of way, right? Um, so then he goes, I'll just go on and read this. He says, beyond all, my under- beyond all my understanding, beyond what I can say about this in particular, there was, I know not what inexplicable and fateful force that was the mediator of this union. Then he had, here's something else he added at the end of his life. We sought each other before we met because of the reports we heard of each other, which had more effect on our affection than such reports would reasonably have. I think it was by some ordinance from heaven we embraced each other by our names. Our friendship, our friendship has no other model than itself and be compare, can be compared only with itself. 
Now, we can think about Montaigne thinking about friendship when he says our friendship has no other model in itself. We remember, of course, that the idea of friendship, of male friendship, is an old philosophical theme, right? It goes back to Plato and and Seneca and Cicero. All these people write about friendship and usually about friendship between men, right? This is kind of classic stuff for classic philosophy, for for, for ancient Greek and Roman philosophy. And Montaigne says, nope, this is something different. Forget the ancients. There, it's, this, is the new, this is a new kind of friendship, and it's the mysterious friendship between me and La Boissie. Um, and then he ends and says, It is not one special consideration, nor two, nor three, nor four, nor a thousand. It is, I know not what quintessence of all, quintessence of all this mixture, which having seized my whole will, led it to plunge and lose itself in his. Now we're getting into a certain kind of what looks to me like a very erotic kind of language there, right? Um, uh, then an addition which having seized his whole will led, led it to plunge and lose itself in mine with equal hunger, equal rivalry. I say lose in truth for neither of us reserved anything for himself nor was anything either his or mine. I mean, it's extraordinarily beautiful depiction of, the relation, of his relationship to, to his friend as, as this some kind of friendship that was unexampled, that had no precedent, that had never been seen before. Um, so that's, that, that's the description of his deep friendship with La Boissie, because it was he, because it was I. So I, I just point, as we, as we go, I point, I point out a couple of things that seem interesting to me here. One is this idea that friendship really can only be described, first off, by what it isn't. So he works through this essay by saying it's not, it's not marriage, it's not this, it's not that. Huh? It's some other thing that fits no other category. So that's pretty interesting. And what I find interesting about that in particular is that along the way, he's also developing a kind of model of social relations. Um, he says at one point, you know, my relationship to my doctor can't be friendship because my relationship to my doctor is he's my doctor. He's not my friend, he's my doctor, right? My relationship to, you know, the cab driver is the cab, is my relationship to the cab driver. Those are certain kinds of relations. Then there's this other thing which is called friendship. And the only way you can really understand what it is is it's none of those other things. It's not my relationship to my doctor or my relationship to my vet or my relationship to the Uber driver. It's, it's elsewhere, right? So, it, so, so there's this real strong sense of the kind of social construction of all of our relationships, but that friendship is the thing that is none of those things and that is somehow outside of all of, our, of, all of the categories that we use to break up our daily life. That seems kind of astonishing to me and, you know, quite very modern in a certain kind of way. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. So Montaigne uh, also talks about obligations, our obligations to our friends. He, um, he says uh, issues of obligations are, irrele- are irrelevant when you're talking about true friendship. Right? Um, he cites, he makes a reference to, the, to an ancient philosopher called Diogenes, um, whom he liked a lot. Diogenes the cynic. <laughs> and Diogenes said he never asked for money for his friends. He only asked for it back. Because if they were friends... 
the money would already be his um, because it, when you have friends, there's no possess, his possessions or my possession are the same possession. There's no difference. So I don't ask for money for you. I ask for money back. Right. Um, and Montaigne says, when you ask a friend, when you ask a true friend for a favor, you're not trying to get something. In fact, you are honoring the friend by asking him for the favor. Right. In other words, it is you who are being the generous one, not the friend who's giving you the money who's being the generous one. You are honoring the friend by asking him to exercise his friendship. Um, this is, in some ways, it sounds a little bit like the traditional idea of Christian charity. Uh, Erasmus of Rotterdam, who was one of Montaigne's, uh, one of the people Montaigne read as a, as a child, had talked about Christian charity as being as giving something to another that already belongs to him because you're all you're all Christians. But Montaigne here transforms that. He takes it out of a religious and theological context and just says, "No, this is what friendship is. What I have is yours. What when when I ask you for something, uh, uh, it's the same as if you had asked me." So the essay ends in an unusual way. <clears throat> Montaigne, so Montaigne gives us this extraordinarily beautiful and lyrical description of the of his really his love for La Boissie and their kind of their kind of union of the two of them, and then and then he speaks about uh, La Boissie's death. Um, he turns to discuss um, what happens after La Boissie dies, and and for this I have or after La Boissie has died, and for this I have yet another. Passage, yes. So, <clears throat> I don't know where these dots came from. These aren't in the original French, by the way. He says, this, he says, the very discourses that antiquity... Now he's talking about La Boise's death. The very discourses that antiquity has left us on this subject seem weak to me compared with the feeling I have, I mean, after La Boise has died. And this in particular, and in this particular, the facts surpass even the precepts of philosophy. And then he quotes the Roman poet... Horace in Latin, who says, nothing shall I while saying compare with a dear friend. And then Montaigne return, we return to Montaigne. And Montaigne says, the ancient Menander declared that uh, that man happy who had been able to meet even the shadow of a friend. He was certainly right to say so, especially if he spoke from experience. For in truth, if I compare all the rest of my life with the four years which were granted me to enjoy the sweet company and society of that man, it is nothing but smoke. Nothing but dark and dreary night. Since the day I lost him, and then he quotes Virgil, which I shall ever recall with pain, ever with reverence, thus gods did you ordain. I only drag on a weary life, and the very pleasures that come my way, instead of consoling me, redouble my grief for his loss. We went halves in everything. It seems to me that I am robbing him of his share. And then he quotes the poet Terence. And then he says, I was already so formed and accustomed to being a second self everywhere that only half of me seems to be alive now. And then he quotes the Roman poet Horace again. There's no action or thought which I do not miss him as indeed he would have missed me. Here's what the last page looks like. It's a bilingual text. I mean, Montet's text is a bilingual text because there are all these citations in Latin stuck in the middle of the French. But you can see the way it sort of break, completely breaks up the page, right? So it seems to me we, we could ask ourselves, why is it that at the moment that he tries to think about his experience after the death of his friend, he can only do it by quoting somebody else. He can only do it by putting language from these dead Latin poets into his own text to speak his sorrow and his mourning. That seems to me a really interesting gesture. And the, and this is, it, the essay just ends. It just sort of trails off, right? Um, 
So um, that's how it stops, right? So there, there are a couple of things I just want to say then, and, and, and we can stop and have uh, uh, questions. So there are kind of four things that seem to me interesting about this essay. Um, the first is, and I mentioned this already, is that he describes friendship by saying what it's not. It's not marriage. It's not any of these things. And he's, and he's trying to separate it out from frames that we would use to talk about our social relations in order to get at some essence that can't be described in conventional terms. And the only way you can do that is by saying what it's not. Right? That seems to me pretty interesting to me. Um, <clears throat> uh, so our, 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 our relationships, by definition, are framed, but what is not framed is friendship. It has no frame. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing, which, seems, which I was thinking about on the BART coming over here, um, uh, which just strikes me as even, I mean, I, I thought of it, about it before, but thinking about it on the BART really sort of just was kind of overwhelmed by how interesting it is. This essay is called Of Friendship. It's not called Of a Friendship or Of My Friendship or Of, or the, it's not called The Story of a Friendship or My Friendship with La Boisie. It's called Of Friendship. So it's presented as a kind of abstract philosophical explanation, but he can only describe friendship by talking about his own experience of it, right? He doesn't, he doesn't describe it in any kind of ideal terms the way a much more abstract philosopher might do. He explained, he, he describes it through his own experience of it. That, I, in other words, to talk about friendship, I can only tell you what it was like for me to be, to have this exceptional friendship with my friend Laboisi. That seems to me to be really interesting and to be really dramatically modern in a particular kind of way, right? To begin to speak from our own experience, right? I mean, Montaigne's writing right at the beginning of the, the great age of scientific exploration, the great age of scientific discovery, the great the rise of empiricism. Montaigne says experience is actually what teaches us, not some sort of abstract ideal that we might get from Plato or not some sort of abstract moral rule that we might get from Christianity. I can only describe friendship by telling you what I know. I mean, that's the beginning of the modern world right there in some way, right? So that seems really that seems really interesting to me. The third thing I wanted to point point to um, is just the way in which, and this is again something I was thinking about on the bar. I was thinking of two things on the bar. Uh, is is the way in which this language of the erotic, of a kind of pe- being penetrated by the other and and swallowed up in the other? I mean, we see a lot of if you read a lot of Renaissance love poetry, if you read Shakespeare's sonnets, for example, there's all that kind of stuff. But it's usually one person overwhelming the other. It's usually the beloved overwhelming the lover. I saw her and I was zapped, right? Or, you know, I was knocked on my, you know, I've never been the same. I've never been the same. Montaigne takes that and makes it mutual. I saw him and I've never been the same. He saw me and he's never been the same. That seemed to me a kind of interesting sort of um, uh, variation on this old idea of being overwhelmed by your love for someone else. That seemed interesting to me. And finally, the fourth thing I would, wanted to point to would be just the failure of language, right? The way in which um, when it comes to speak of his grief, all he can do is quote these Latin guys. He, he can't say it. I mean, as he said in one of the passages I read to him, or I read to you a minute ago, he says, when I try to write about this, I cannot, I, it's beyond my ability to express it. So we could think about that, again, in the context of a sort of larger history of writing about the sublime or writing about grief, 
right? Or we think of all of the modern literature that we know of writers who deal with kind of um, uh, um, extreme experiences or, 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 or um, um, experiences where language seems to fail. I mean, you think of a writer like Beckett, who at the end of his career seems to have almost reduced himself to silence, or you think of people who try to write about things like genocide or, or violence or whatever, and the way in which there's always this kind of pressure placed on the language of what, they're gonna, of what they can say. Um, uh, Montaigne's dealing with the same kind of thing. He says, I cannot speak my pain at the loss of my friend, but in fact, these other guys can speak my pain. Uh, Horace can, Terence can, Virgil can, and I will quote them. So I think, so there are kind of two things going on here. One is this idea that he's acknowledging the failure of his own language. That very, seems very modern. At the same time, he turns to the classics. That doesn't seem very modern at all. That seems very renaissance So in that kind of paradox of acknowledging your own experience and the breakdown of your own, of your own language, at the same time as you're also turning to the classics and quoting them, that double-edged, double-sided aspect of Montaigne seems to me really characteristic of him. And that's kind of what I, what I take away from the essay. So that, that's it. Thank you very much. I'd like to remind our online and radio audiences that they're listening to Professor Timothy Hampton speaking about Montaigne on friendship. It's time for questions. Who would like to ask the first question about Montaigne? Good evening. Do you think he was quoting the um, or using the language of the classicists because he wanted to elevate friendship beyond his own yeah. experience? Yeah. Because you know, we think that French was the language yeah. of love, yeah. and yeah. How, how could that be? Yeah. Yeah. Not good enough. Yeah. Um, I mean, possibly. That's that's a really interesting that, as a way of as a way of suggesting the nobility of this love that can only be expressed in another language. I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe that's the way to go. I mean, it's not by accident that he doesn't quote. I mean, he could have quoted an Italian poet or he could have quoted he could have quoted. He sometimes quotes French poets, mostly Latin, but sometimes Italian and French. And and in this case, he goes right back to the big shots. Right. Virgil, of all people, and Horace, who are the great, you know, of the classical world. So maybe that's the way to think about it. There is a wonderful moment in the essays where he says, in fact, um, he says, if I thought these books were going to live, if I thought this thing was going to live, because it, he talks over and over again about how, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. It's changing from day to day. One day I feel sick and I write one thing and it's, 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 it's almost, it really is like a kind of blog, right? And he's, and at one point he says, if I thought this was going to last more than a few years, I'd write it in Latin, mm-hmm. you know, because Latin's a language which is going to last. French isn't going to last. <laughs> French has changed in the time that I've been alive. So French is, you know, French is on the way out. Latin is the language to write in. <laughs> um, fortunately, he made that choice. A lot of his contemporaries made the wrong choice, and we, nobody, heard, nobody except, except people like me who have to do this for a living have ever heard of him. So <laughs> he, he, he made the right choice. Yeah, but, but that's a fabulous question. And the, and the question of this kind of tension between the Latin and the French in, in, in the text, and that, he, and that he puts one in italics and the other, that's, per, that's an interesting thing, right? So to put something, where is it? Yeah, to put things in italics, why are italics called italics? Because they were the Italian print. They were developed by the Italian printers, right? I mean, we're living in the first century, after all, of print culture, right? Um, um, Gutenberg's Bible, Gutenberg invented movable typing about in the 
1470. So it's, we're 100 years later. This is the beginnings of print culture. And italics are called italics because that's what the Italians developed, the print that the Italians developed. So here he's really being... Yeah, and and here he's really being, you know, he's got he's got sort of two different kinds of print, uh, and I don't know what the, I'm not, I don't know what this actually um, font is called. Like we could one could probably find out, but it's interesting that he doesn't put them in two. He, he uses two different languages in two different prints. That's kind of a cool thing. When did you when did you get attracted to Montaigne? How old were you when you first started reading him? So I read Montaigne uh, in grad school. Mm-hmm. I have to say, I wish I could. I wish I. I wish I could say that I, I ingested Montaigne with my mother's milk, but I did not. Um, I went to grad school, and I was trying to write a dissertation on Renaissance ideas of classical history, how, Renaissance, how the Renaissance thought about the great classical political actors like Caesar and Alexander the Great and what they made of them when they sort of grabbed them and stuck them into their own text. We think of of Shakespeare's plays Julius Caesar, but Montaigne is constantly talking about Alexander the Great. And and I wanted to sort of think about that. And I had some other authors that I was interested in, Machiavelli, notably in Italian. This was a comparative literature dissertation, so it's across several languages. And my my advisor said to me, you have to work on Montaigne. And I said, Mm -hmm. no, please, do I have to? (laughs) It's really hard. It's really boring. And, um, you know... I think it's one of the few things worth reading. I really do. <laughs> My yeah. question is, this obviously was a huge event in his life. Yeah. How, after this, yeah. uh, did, you, did, you, did you see his thoughts in his writing develop? And, and how did that go toward the end of his life? And when did he die? How many, and how many years after his friend? So he dies a long time. So his friend dies. His fr- the death of his friend is the beginning of his writing career. Right. So if his friend hadn't died, he would have probably gone on living his public life, going to court, going to the Parliament of Toulouse, because he would have had somebody to talk to. Right. And they could have walked around under the vineyards, you know, discoursing on philosophy. But suddenly there's nobody to talk to. So he retires to his and plus his father died um, and his father had educated him. So he retires to his castle at that point. And it, I mean, there's this fabulous thing, which is that he retires to his castle and in the beams of his study in his castle, he carves a series of kind of proverbs in Latin. And that's, and then he says, he writes, you know, on this day, I retire from the world. And he goes and writes. And you can go there and see to this day, the beams in Montaigne's castle and visit the castle and see where he carved these Latin. So it's like he was really returning to this kind of world of classical learning and he was going to kind of see what he could make of it. So that's the beginning of his writing because if he had had his friend to talk to, he wouldn't have had to write, he wouldn't have had to become a philosopher. He, so he dies, I think he died of, you know, whatever people died of in those days, apoplexy or something. Um, and he, he what, did, what did I say is date? 1592? I can never keep it. I always get it confused between 1592 and 1594. Um, 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 92, I think you said. 92 is what I said. So it was yeah. 59, I think. Right. So, um, right, 92. And 1594, right after this, is the moment where the French Wars of Religion come to an end when Henry IV, the, the Prince of Navarre, I mean, there's this famous moment. So Henry IV, the Prince of... So Montaigne was a, a moderate Catholic. In other words, he... So, you know, France is torn between 
um, the Ukrainian, I'm sorry, the, 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 mm-hmm. the Spanish and the, and the Italians who are backing the ultra-Catholic um, contingent and there's an ultra-Protestant contingent who's backed by our, our friend Queen Elizabeth and the English. Mm. This is before Brexit. And uh, <laughs> and France is the is the battleground in the late 16th century over the question of religion. France and Germany to some extent, but even especially France. And so you've got these outside powers that are fighting it out through the French. So Montaigne is a moderate Catholic, meaning he he re- he respects the king and he respects the church because he was raised in them. He's a classic conservative in a sense. He says, you know, he says these things these things served us for many years. I am. I obey the king because my father obeyed the king, and I was raised a Catholic, so I remain a Catholic. So he was a kind of moderate Catholic in a Protestant territory. The southwest of France was rabid Protestant area. So he was this kind of weird guy. And this, and in, and in 1594, so after two years after Montaigne dies, is the moment when Henry the Fourth, who was the Prince of Navarre, who was a Protestant. Goes to he's in line for the French throne, even though he's a Protestant, and he goes to France. He goes to Paris and converts to Catholicism with this famous phrase: "Paris is worth the mass." In other words, mm-hmm. if I have to go to mass in order to have to be, to be the king of Paris, I'll do it. And so that ends the civil wars and ushers in a period of relative peace. And then, and then we get the the beginnings of the so-called age of absolutism in the 17th century with the Bourbons, Louis the Thirteenth and Louis the Fourteenth. And one of the reasons they were able to consolidate their power was because the country had just gone through 40 years of chaos, and People were desperate for centralized authority. I don't know if that meant, quite mentioned his father uh, quite often. Was yeah. his father famous? Did he write anything? Yeah, no, he... his father wasn't famous. Uh, his fa- but interestingly enough, his father's name wasn't Montaigne. So his father's name was Pierre Equem, and he was a, they, he was from, they were from merchant stock, but his, his father had gotten himself ennobled. Hmm. Um, you know, you could do this in those days, right? I mean, it was, you know, you just had to have the right pack behind you or something. And you, could go to, you could go to court and get yourself ennobled. So his father got himself ennobled for service to the crown. Mm-hmm. And so Montaigne was the first member of the family to call himself Montaigne, Michel de Montaigne. So, um, so but the father, what, the father didn't write anything, but the father played an important role in Montaigne's uh, life because he, he was very interested in philosophy and he had a book in Latin by a writer named Sibond, who was a who was a Catalan writer who wrote a book of philosophy, big thick book of philosophy in Latin, and he gave it to Montaigne and said, "Translate this." <laughs> and so that was Montaigne's first sort of job was writing job was to translate the the Sibond book. So um, his father, so and he talks, uh, he has a beautiful essay on education, which maybe I can come back and talk about uh, next year, <laughs> where he talks about his father uh, and his father's his father's. Um, investment in his education and, and the high expectations for his father. And I mean, it's a very beautiful essay. And he actually says, in fact, he was the best father who ever lived. And I see that I have let him down, mm. that I am, I am lazy. I am inattentive. I can't remember anything. He claims he has a terrible memory, which if he, <laughs> he says, I'm inattentive. I can't remember. I've never made anything of myself. You know, I'm living here off my stock options. I don't, I don't do anything. And, you know, I re- feel that I've really let my father down. And there was this real sense of his, that he thought he was a kind of loser. Mm-hmm. And his relationship to his father is very, com- is very complicated. 
Right. And you said it was for services that cost a little like Sir Paul McCartney. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Now, yeah. yeah, exactly. That's how pay a lot of taxes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Pay a lot of taxes. So you had a question. Somebody had a questions question. over here. Yeah. yeah. Did Montaigne ever find another clo- uh, close friend anywhere nearly as close? As- All, almost as close. And that's a that's a fabulous question. Thank you. At the end of his so by the end of his life, he becomes famous. Right. I mean, he publishes these essays uh, uh, and he doesn't really expect that anything is going to come of them. But he begins to be read all over the place, Um, translated. He was translated. Well, he he wasn't translated during his life. He was translated quickly into Italian. And in 1609, he was translated into English by an Italian expatriate named John Florio, who translated the essays. uh, And that's the version of Montaigne's essays that Shakespeare read. So we know, for example, if you read The Tempest or... um, or measure for measure, there are passages in Shakespeare's text that are ripped off from Montaigne, that are basically taken from Montaigne, right? So um, he was translated, so he became famous. And uh, at the end of his life, he was written to by a young woman named Marie de Gournay, G-O-U-R-N-A-Y, who was a young noblewoman who was educated, had read Montaigne's essays, was in fascinated by them, and came to visit him. And they began corresponding, and when he died, he left his legacy, his literary legacy to her. She was the, she was the executor of his, his literary estate, in other words. And so then she did the first edition, the first big complete edition of the essays was done by, by Marie de Gournay, and she herself wrote some very interesting texts about the dignity of women, about the importance of women uh, and education. I mean, it was very radical. And she's one of these people who was completely forgotten and has been rediscovered in the past sort of 30 years by kind of feminist literary historians. So she in herself is is an interesting figure. And he called her his adopted daughter, his fidalience is the French phrase. Um, so that's a great question. Yeah, so she, if, if anybody could... could um, replace La Boise, it would have been her. But of course, she was very young. I mean, she was probably twenty in her 20s, and he was very old. So by his own terms, that couldn't be really the same, the real kind of friendship. Yeah. Um, so then he didn't, did he ever revise the these ideas that he put down about friendship after meeting her or no. through the letters, or yeah. is it is it not known? No, so this is just, this is what we have. I mean, this is all we have. Friendship. The the only other, the other interesting document around this whole case is that there's a letter by Montaigne to his father about the death of his friend La Boissy. It's it's an extraordinary document. Um, La Boissy dies as any philosopher should, um, an exemplary death. He's courageous to the end. He's like Socrates, right? You remember Socrates drinks the hemlock and says, you know, okay, I'm going to die. La Boissy is you know similar, and Montaigne gives this long narrative and uh, and there's this extraordinary moment right at the end where La Boise is about to die and he calls Montaigne into his room and he grabs Montaigne uh, and, and, and he left his books to Montaigne and he grabs Montaigne by the hand or by the arm and he says, my brother, why are you denying me my place? And Montaigne is like, Devastated by this, you know, what does it mean? What, you know, and then he dies, right? I mean, it's kind of, you know, <laughs> I mean, what, you know, that's what happens in this in this kind of story, right? <laughs> so, so, um, 
So Montaigne, of course, is haunted by this. What does that mean? You know, at the last moment. What, but, and then also there's this idea that he gives his library to Montaigne. So whatever Montaigne writes, it's La Boise's books in part, you know, that he's, you know, overwhelmed by in some kind of way. Yes. What do you think he means by, I think it was by some uh, ordinance from yeah, heaven? Yeah. I don't know. That's a really, that's a re, I was struck by that phrase working through the essay this time. Through. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's a very strange phrase, isn't it, right? Our friendship, wait, he says, we, we met because of the, right, we met because, so we knew ourselves because of our names. In other words, they heard about each other. People said, oh, you should check out that guy, like Montaigne, he's really smart. Um, we embraced each other by our names, right? Um, um, he says, right, before we met, uh, we, sought, we sought each other, and this is for the C text, so he's added this into the text. We sought each other before we met because of the reports we heard of each other, which had more effect on our affection than such reports would reasonably have. That in itself is already a strange phrase, right? Like, do people come up to you and say, hey, you should really, you know, you should really get to know him. And you usually go, yeah, right. Except in this case, people, he said, yeah, well, maybe I should, right? Um, um, I think it was by some ordinance from heaven. We embraced each other by our names. I don't know. I don't know what it means. But you're right. You would now we would say they were guided by some kind of higher, higher thing. And if I could, um, if I could do something really interesting here with this text, I would. But I can't. <laughs> so I won't wait. Um, I was looking for that. It must be right. This must be the passage. But I can't read it, unfortunately. Anyway. Any other questions or quick picky um, yeah. grammatical question? Yeah. There's a smaller, a lowercase c and a bigger case c. Yeah. In some of those references. That's just that, me. That's, just that's me. called. <laughs> okay. That's called putting the hand out together while doing five other things. <laughs> <laughs> Right. But in most editions, and there's a gentleman back there who has an edition. You have the Donald, is that the Donald Frame translation? That's, yes. yeah. So there are a bunch of translations of the essays running around. If you want to read Montaigne in the language of Shakespeare, you can read the John Florio translation, which you can actually get online easily enough, as you would imagine. Um, uh, and there's even a little edition called Shakespeare's Montaigne, which was edited by the scholar uh, Stephen Greenblatt, which you can get in paperback. Uh, I think it's New York Review of Books Press that has just the essays that Montaigne read or that Shakespeare read in the version that Shakespeare read. There's also an, an, an essay by Greenblatt to which you should pay no attention. Um, <laughs> but the essays themselves are great. So if you want to read Montaigne in Shakespeare's language, that's great. Um, then there are a couple of modern translations. There's one by, by a guy named Michael Screech, which is published by Penguin. I'm not, uh, I'm, he's a guy who taught for many years at the University of London. I'm not a major Michael Screech fan because um, I think he's got kind of a tin ear. Montaigne's much more poetic than he lets him be. Um, this translation, which is by Donald Frame, uh, dates from like 1960, Stanford University Press. Um, uh, and I still think it's the best translation. It reads really beautifully. And um, in fact, I was taught Montaigne by a, a, a professor of mine at Princeton who is French. And he said, I never work on Montaigne without my Donald Frame because he's often clearer than Montaigne himself. <laughs> so I, I highly recommend that translation. And you can find those. I mean, you can get them. I guess it's been reissued now. It used to be Stanford University Press. I don't know if it's maybe modern, somebody, modern classics, whatever. I don't know. Anyway, I usually go down to Moe's Books on Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley, and they usually have them for about 15 bucks, and I buy them up and then give them to my graduate students. Um, <laughs> 
but uh, I recommend that, uh, uh, and it's great to dip in, dip into. It's it's they're really really wonderful. Did Montaigne have any siblings? Were they educated as well? No, he did not have siblings. He had a daughter, um, and we don't know very much about the daughter. He we the other, only other thing we know about him is that he was he was married to a woman who appears to have been a Jew. That's pretty interesting, who was from a Portuguese Jewish family. Mm-hmm. Um, what that has to do, I mean, he's, he's well known for his kind of toleration of other religions, of other cultures. I mean, one of his, probably the essay of his that's read most frequently nowadays, certainly by my students, is his essay called Of Cannibals, which is about the Tupi culture of Brazil that he never he never went to Brazil but he read about it and it's an extraordinary exercise in open-mindedness because he writes about the culture of the of the, of the cannibals in Brazil who were, of course in his time were described as being you know savages with no souls with you know whatever whatever and he says actually if you think about their culture from the inside and you see what their values are you can see that actually they're no more barbarian than we are Astonishing thing to say in 1580. Um, uh, and and uh, how did I get on that tangent? Oh, you were asking me about. Uh, about oh, so he's so he's he has a real sense of toleration. There's a, also a beautiful essay called on cruelty, which is about torture actually. And he has a he, which was of course totally condoned in the 16th century. And Montaigne says, "Don't torture people. You should never torture people." He says, "If you want to kill them, that's okay, but don't torture them for God's sakes." Mm-hmm. He says, "That's." He says, don't destroy the soul. If, you're gonna, if they're criminals and you have to kill the body, that's okay. But don't, tor- don't torture people before they're dead. I mean, it's, 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 it's inhuman. It's, it's unacceptable. So he, he's very tolerant in that sense. And, and people have speculated that that might have something to do with this kind of contact with the Jewish culture of, of, of the Jewish diaspora in Spain and Portugal. I don't know. Time you know? for one more question. Anybody have a last question? You know, I got nothing to do. I'm ready to <laughs> stay till nine. Well, that was great. Thank you very, very well, much, thanks, Professor. Thanks to you. And so adds another event in the Commonwealth Club's 117th year of enlightened discussion.